mother got through Auschwitz is a whole different story. She was the youngest one. She was 13 years old. She shouldn't have been there, but God had other plans. She knew this was the end of the story. Okay. She goes and he takes her to the kitchen. She says she walks into this kitchen and there were kielbasa sausages hanging and loaves of bread everywhere. Her eyes were bugging out of her head. He takes out a knife and she's going, Shema Yisrael. And he cuts down a sausage and he cuts a piece of meat, S, Kent, S, and he makes her eat. Now when he's got his back turned, she takes a piece of that bread and drops it down her dress because her sister, her tante, and her stepmother, they all stay together during the war. She brought back meat and she brought back bread so that they could have a little bit of nourishment after that. Pretty amazing story. Yeah. And this happened one time? Over several times. You know, he couldn't give himself away. I'll tell you a, a quick story. When they first got to Auschwitz, so they went through this whole process, this whole ruse of getting a shower and then delousing. Before they did that, they went to, um, they would take men to shave the heads. There couldn't be any hair. And my mother said she waited outside with her sister. Her sister's name was Lola, and the Polish name was Wanya, and she was Henya. And my mother said she looked at Lola, and she meant Wanya, and you looked at my mother and said, Henya. And they started laughing at each other because they looked like freakazoids. Can you imagine bald head? And that, that was like, that, that was a story that was just beyond beyond. Then one of the ammunition camps, um, they would go down the, the road, you know, um, putting pieces together. And while the SS lady was at one end, the older ladies would show my mother how to not put a piece in so that the, it would be an incomplete rifle or I don't know what they were making, bullets, it could Sabotage. be anything. Exactly. So that was also, um, go mom. <laughs> wow. And it was there. And you, from her you didn't hear that you did a Yiddish guy or anything like that? From her, always. From my father, nothing. From my father, nothing. I, I'll tell you a very, very um, moving story for me. If you go to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, they'll give you a passport, and you go through the four floors, and at the end, you read whether this person was going to survive or not. I decided to take back a classroom full, and the next year, I gave out to my students, the, the girls' class, and I had them read. We were trying to figure out who the Holocaust affects. And we sorted out men, women, world. Okay. And I decided to take a passport. There was an extra one. I'm sitting there in my chair in front of the class, and I'm reading through this. And all of a sudden, my, my eyes were bucking out of my head. Here is a survivor of a camp that my father survived in. Now, my father was in, he went through Birkenau. He had a B and a number. Birkenau had subcamps. My father was in a subcamp called Yobuzhna. It was a coal mining camp. And they did horrible things. You know, you'd work for 12 hours in the coal mines, then you'd come out and they would spray you with water. It's 20 degrees outside and shivering and shaking, a terrible thing. 
my father got to the point, he was the one that would light the fuse, so he was the last one. He went in and lit the fuse, and he didn't come out, and his bunk mates, you know, where's Lou? And they went in and they, they pulled him out. He, he was ready to, to give it up. I see this man is from Yuvajna. I look on the back, and he volunteers at the Holocaust Museum. He's a volunteer. I got off my chair. There's a phone in the classroom. I find the number of the Holocaust Museum. I explain who I am. Where are the volunteers? I need to speak to somebody in that office. I find the volunteers. Here's this man. Could you tell me, does he still volunteer? Yes, he's there every Wednesday. So I'm doing this class April. We come back from, from Pesach vacation. And I go visit Miriam Adasa, who's living in Baltimore at the time. We drive down to Washington. And I met this man who, now he didn't know my father, but he told me things that, that would make your hair stand on edge. And I understood why daddy never spoke about it. Just unbelievable, horrible things that um, he just did not want to pass that on. So, listen, I'm just an Atlanta kid who grew up on Biltmore Drive. <laughs> my idea of danger was crossing Lewis <laughs> So, explain, what, what's it like? to meet somebody from the camp that your father in those, why was that important to you? It was a connection. I, I was hoping to get information. I couldn't get it out of my father. But when he told me the things that were going on at that camp, I realized he was really trying to protect me. Your father? My father was trying to protect me. And this man had written um, a copy of his story. He, he left, I mean, he survived. He left um, Germany. He wound up in Panama. He had to, he, so he knew Yiddish and he knew Polish. Now he had to learn Spanish. He learned Portuguese. Then he wound up in New York. Um, and then he wound up in Silver Spring. And that's how he became a, a volunteer at the Holocaust Museum. That, that was just an amazing story to find out. Nobody survived. There was one survivor in Atlanta, Leo Newhouse, God rest his soul. He survived Yvashna. He and Daddy had a, hmm. a close. At the average, you know, the average span was about three months to survive in Yavajna, because my father was there too. Yeah. Really? Yeah, my, my you know, um, well, my father knew that in order to survive, he has to be useful, right. you know, so he didn't want to be a shaykhat, okay? So, and he had the 14-year-old boy with him, which was, you know, another story. It was also from, he knew his parents, so. Wait a minute, he was taking care of a 14-year-old year boy who was also in a camp from the hometown that he knew his parents, you know, so he took under his, you know. Yeah, how old is your father at this point? You know? About 29, 30, yeah. something like yeah. that. So, so he, he took, you know, so you know, my father told him, said, when they, you know, when they call, you know, whenever I go, you go with me. So they ask, you know, for the Tischler, for the Tischler is a, is a carpenter. And my father said, we are carpenters, okay? My father couldn't put the nails straight in the wall. I mean, my father, you know, couldn't do it. He could slice meat perfectly, but he could not put the nail in the wall straight. So, and of course, very, very, very shortly after that, uh, then one of the Nazis realized that he, he was not a you know good worker. So he said, "What's your real profession?" My father said, "I'm a butcher." He said, "To the kitchen." Mm. So he took my father to the kitchen. You know, Abramek, which was the little boy, uh, you know, Abraham, but he was you know called Abram or Abramek, which is diminutive in Polish, you know, and. Uh, so my, but my father didn't want to be in the kitchen because there's always, you know, problems, you know, or maybe he, 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 steals, he steals food. 
he, my father had to learn how to whistle because when you work in the kitchen, you have to whistle all the time so that you cannot put anything in the mouth. You cannot take the bite. Really? Yeah, he had to whistle. My father couldn't whistle even after the war. He tried to whistle, but he was just, you know, we just, you know, he was telling me the story then. But, um, and then he was, you know, having to give the soup. So he didn't want to be partial, so he asked them to, to, to put the board right on the window so he could see only this much, you know, somebody just stuck the bowl, you know, he would just, you know, you know pull that. And, um, you mean so he wouldn't see who was who receiving it? Who was receiving it. Wow. And uh, so, you know, so this was real, you know, carpenter, some, somebody came. And uh, the German who was, you know, supervising the, after the, the uh, you know, the carpenter did work, you know, he said to my father, give him a slice of bread. By that time, my father already spoke fluent German. My father knew the Hochdeutsch and Plattdeutsch, and he knew from the, from the accents that, and he said, give him a slice of bread. So my father gave him a bread, oh. and the whole bread. And the guy quickly grabbed the bread and ran, you know, before the German, you know, and of course, the, you know, the German hit, you know, my father, you know, slapped him in the, in the head or whatever. So later on, the, 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 the guy asked him, he said, like, you know, you know, he, you know, he gave me the whole bread. Why did you give me the whole bread? He said, my father said, listen, even if I gave you a slice of bread, he's going to find a problem. Too, he would tell me I, I gave it too thick, too big of problems. So I was going to get hit anyway. So for my one hitting, you might have the whole bread. He said, you know, why, why, why bother with that? So, you know, he was... So he was, you know, he was very, very, very careful. And whatever he could steal something, he would always bring it to Abramic. So, uh, and uh, an interesting thing because you know Abramic was kind of adopted son. Okay, and after Abramic survived too, and uh, you know, he told him he was the only survivor actually from the family. His family was well to do, and he told my father where his his parents say, you know put all the money and so forth. He says, I believe I don't survive; it's all yours. And if you come first, save it for me. And Abrahamic came back to, you know, to, to, to town. And the winter was coming up now, and Abrahamic, you know, recovered. I mean, my father saved all of this for him. And you know, Abrahamic wanted me winter coat. Winter's in Poland, like, really bad. So he wanted to sell a piece of jewelry. And my father said, no, no. You know, if they find out that you have a piece of jewelry, they, they, will, they will suspect that you have more. They're going to murder you. So my father, you know, took, you know, he didn't have his own coat yet. But he bought for Abramic. So my father told me a lot of the story, this beautiful story. Of course, you idealize. You know, it's like all the stories are, you know, this. And uh, but he always missed Abramic. He says he always thought, you know, he said, you know, my father always spoke Yiddish. So he said, I wonder where's my Abramic now. I wonder. Where's we thought that Abramic went to America, but finally, about what five, six years ago, I found Abramic. He was still alive in Haifa. And actually, we went to visit him. And he already had a stroke, but he, <clears throat> I, I called him first, you know, on the phone to find out, you know, I asked him, so you speak English? No. You speak, you know, Polish? Yes. So we spoke, uh, he said, do you remember, you know, Rachmiel? And he said, yeah, he's dead, you know, I saw him at that time, I knew traffic, but my father died in Poland. So, and I said, uh, and he said, who is that? I said, that's his son. And there was a silence. This is what in the book I, you know, I wrote to him. He said, silence. And I said, like, maybe he's ticked off, you know, he doesn't want to you know, rewarmed the old stuff there. And his wife got on the phone, he says, he was so choked up that he couldn't speak. So eventually we went, you know, my wife and I went to visit him. And, you know, he was paralyzed, but he insisted on getting up, standing up to give me a hug. And basically he was just crying on my shoulder. I have a picture of his, uh, of his tattoo, the number, he, they were in the same transport. 
the numbers are like maybe 200 or so, you know, right? And Abrahamic, you know, tell me some stories, you know, about my father. It was exactly what my father told me. It was just justification that my father was telling the truth. He was always, you know, and he was actually speaking some Polish and said, like, amazing man, amazing man. Thanks to him, I survived. You know, it's the same. But also, you know, there were bad, bad Germans, there were good Germans. You know, when my father was working in the kitchen, you know, one time one of the Germans, you know, got, got drunk, came to, came to the kitchen, took off his cap with his black, you know, you know uh, what you call it, whatever they have on the cap. Eagle. You know, eagle, yes. black eagle, whatever. And he took it out. And holding hand, pull out the gun and give it to my father. Said, "Shoot this!" And my father said, "Abanus, they're gonna catch me with a knife, with a gun, <laughs> shooting at this." He said, "No, no, no." So he said, "No." So you hold it. I will shoot. <laughs> He's drunk. He's drunk. <laughs> so, so you know, and then no, he was totally drunk. And then he went to the to the kitchen where the the, 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 the food was prepared for the Germans. My father worked for the camp, you know, the, the thin soup, okay? And he walked in over there when they were cooking, some other cooks were cooking for, you know, for the Germans. And he knocked everything on the, you know, on the floor. And he said, you know, in Germans, I felt fluctuate swine, swine, you know, the, 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 you know, he said, like, the swines, let them eat the, the, the slop that they, they give to other people. So he was, you know, when he got drunk... Well, he was feeling guilty, I he, I'm sure he did. Together uh, with the same camp as uh, Mr. Hiller, Rabbi Hiller's uh, father. Really? Yeah, in, in our chest of hope, they were they were manufacturing the uh, rifle bullets. So my mother was working actually at manufacturing this for A, B, and C section. Uh, my mother was in the machine manufacturing. She got some injury there because the machine went through her hand. Um, and then there was also you know the thing, and and then the ref uh, filling it with the powder was the seed. That's where Mr. Hiller was. And they were just, you know, the powder was blue, you know, yellow. The, the old person, you know, everybody was yellow skin, no matter what, you couldn't get it. The bread that they got was yellow and very bitter tasted and so forth. When my mother was going to, to work, it was in the fall, and she realized that something got on, on her head. It was under the tree, it was in the fall, the leaf fell on it, you know. So she took it up, you know, she took the thing. And then all of a sudden she got a hit with a baton on the head. The German was walking behind, and he wanted to take the leaf off. It's like he, he decided that he wanted to do it, and she was faster, so she got hit in the head. She still had the scar, you know. You know I remember. So it's like some more phrases, some more good. Most so let me ask you a question. This uh, this Abramchik, were you? Uh, this I'm asking a personal question. Were you jealous of him? No. Were you nervous that you weren't good enough to be your father's son when you? Oh no, him? no, no, not at all, no, no, not at all. You felt like my you were a brother. Did you feel like you were a brother? It was like my older brother. Yeah, you know, not at all. I was not, you know, not jealous at all. Uh, my father was very, you know, very loving person and uh, very sensitive. He would, he would cry at the, at the drop of the, you know, hat. I mean, he would cry. You know, I'm the same one actually. I'm, I'm really holding on tonight. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm holding on. You know, I, I think I was, you know, my father has very soft, you know, soft heart, even after the war. You know, uh, when we had everything that was, in Poland was shortage of everything. Not only food, but, you know, clothes. Everything has to be custom made, if you could find material for it. And uh, my, uh, uh, one day, my, you know, somebody came to the door, you know, for, for, for tzedakah. And my mother gave him some tzedakah. My father was always busy reading something, you know. My mother was the maker. My father was earner and come home and, you know, rest and so on. 
And the, the men come and the men ask, you know, he said, uh, you know, the winter is coming, his shoes were, go, you know, worn, worn out. And he says, maybe you have a pair of shoes. So my mother said, look at my father. My, my father said, you know, just with the head, just go. I remember that very clearly. So she went. And, uh, and she got the pair of shoes, you know, going to the door. And my father just looked and said, Velche, Velche, so which one, which one? He was in Yiddish, which one? And she bought, I said, you know, the old shoes. <clears throat> and, I, and I remember my father said, you know, the the old shoes he already had. Give him the new ones. And this was custom-made boots. My father just had the custom-made boots for the winter. And he, you know, he never got them, you know, winter boots. I think that's true of this all is, the survivors. Yeah. Very they giving. all gave. They all were yeah. givers. Really? Yeah. Um, you, you could see that just in the neighborhood. Um, people coming, uh, immigrants who were coming from from Poland, from Russia during that whole time. I remember my parents going around collecting furniture, trying to find an apartment, getting a job. You, I remember you, that your you parents were very helpful when my sister came here first before me. Right. My sister came like five, six years earlier, and you know, and your father helped me. You know, thanks to your father, I am who I am not today. Because, you know, we met, we, we lived in your parents' apartment. And I didn't speak, I didn't speak English, so we, I communicated only in Yiddish. Your father spoke the logic Yiddish. You know, so it's Yiddish. And he said, what am I going to do? This is what period of time around? 1975. When I met, you know, when I met them there. My parents were very close with, with, with the other parents, you know. They were like sisters, actually. You know. And, um, so he, he said, what am I going to do? I said, no, I just came to America. You know, it's like, <laughs> I came on Pesach. This was my Pesach, 1974 Pesach. This was my, my C.S. Poyland. <laughs> 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 so, so, he said, so he said, you need to go to Georgia Tech. I already had a degree in Poland. He said, you need to go to Georgia Tech. I said, I English. I, I, I don't speak any English. He said, no. And, and, and he was very... Sorry. Daddy did not take notes. No, no, he, said, he went to the president of Georgia Tech. No, not we president. He was, he, he, I was taking English as second, second language in Georgia State. So he said, when you're finishing, I said, like 11 o'clock, whatever. He said, be there on the corner of the street. And he comes out with his Camaro, the brown Camaro. He, he loved the Camaro, remember? That's his toy. It was his toy. He got me in and drove me to Georgia Tech. I don't know where I was going, what I was going. I remember that you know, in admission was Mr. James Clegg. And I remember this name because it doesn't sound Jewish, right? He wasn't Jewish, but he had a Talmud quote on the, on the wall. And it kind of struck me, in a, it's like, that's strange, you know, I'm going with the Talmud. And somehow I look at his name. So he's a Jewish? No, James Clegg. And until today, I remember that. And every time he was talking, he was translating to me in, in Yiddish. You know what I have to do? I have to take SAT. How can I take SAT? I don't know English. You know that I did take SAT. Really? <laughs> I, I, scored, I aced math, and I hardly. I, I didn't. You know, in English I couldn't read it, so it was like A B C or C B D. So I was under it. I was under it. So yeah. they accepted me only conditionally, if I can show that I can do C or better on the first quarter. This was the quarters then. I can, you know. I, I can be a regular student, so I took math, I took physics, and the Russian language, <laughs> which I already knew a little bit of Russian. I had, I had a, in high school Russian in Poland, but I already learned how to speak Russian on the way from Poland when I met all the Russian immigrants, the conversational Russian. So I, I think I, I could, you know, the, the teacher didn't speak English very well, so we communicated in Russian, so I had 
I, I have engineering degree and a minor in Russian, all the way to literature, to Pushkin and all the other, you know, so I took this. And math and, and physics was not a big deal for me. I already had it before. Calculus, I, I learned in high school. So I got A in physics, A in, 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 in math, C, uh, B in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in chemistry, chemistry was harder, and, and A in, 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 uh, in Russian language. So I was a normal student then. <laughs> and I took only the hard courses first, because the engineering courses, because I didn't have to speak for that, you know, electrical engineering and so forth. And all the freshman courses I took when I was a senior. So I had really hard, you know, very easy time scheduling them because you have to take political sciences, history, there are tons of them. So I, I could work and I had just in the morning this. So, you know, your father, you know, thanks to your father, I am. My dad had yeah. a big heart. So, I don't know where he learned it from. It must have been his mother. He had a, um, most of the survivors. Most of the survivors in the city had uh, grocery stores in the black neighborhood. My father had a, a customer. They came to tell him, Mr. Lou, um, Bonnie done shot somebody. Bonnie was um, a, a customer. We ended up going to jail for X amount of time, and my mother would write him letters. Bonnie, don't worry. When you get out, we're gonna, Mr. Lou gonna give you a job. D don't worry. Now this was when Lester Maddox was the governor, oh, yeah. and he was really big on paroling yeah. prisoners. Yeah, he was. They paroled him. Daddy took him downtown. Do you remember Zachary's? It was a men's yeah, sure, store. Sure. Daddy took him down to Zachary's, bought him a hat, bought him a suit, bought him Shh. under things, shoes, and then taught him how to cut meat in his grocery store. Mm -hmm. And I, that's who these survivors were. I don't think they saw themselves as victims. None of my parents' friends who were survivors were ever victims. They were all survivors. And they all wanted to assimilate um, and be a Yankee doodle dandy just in the first degree. I'll never forget, we moved into our house on Kendridge Court in 1963. In 1965, my brother was bar mitzvah. One of the reasons that my mother wanted that house is so my brother could walk to Beth Jacob so that he could be bar mitzvah here. I will never forget that weekend, the pride that my parents felt having a bar mitzvah. Really? 20 years after the war, and they're making a bar mitzvah. They made a big dinner, and all the relatives came, and they had the candlelighting ceremony. We're not observant. My mother was observant. This is what she did. Every Friday night, she lit candles. Every Friday night, she made chicken soup. We hated boiled chicken. Daddy loved it. So we would eat our chicken soup, and then we'd go run to Adams Stadium to watch Barclay Barons play football or, or basketball. Yeah, but, but, but we knew. We, we had matzah for Pesach. I don't know that we had satyrs, because Daddy was still telling his stories, you know. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, they were all. Let me ask about Yitzhi. When I grew up here, um, Yisker was a big crowd. And before I knew what the numbers were, I saw there were a lot of numbers for Yisker. A lot of people with numbers in hand. Then I got older, I realized what it was. But I remember there were a lot of, a lot of uh, European people came to say Yisker. Did they come to say Yisker? My that? mother did. My mother yeah. always did. She was Fred's best friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember. I remember your mother. I mean, I remember mother. I mean, Daddy never. He had a, a lot of terrible things that happened religious people and but he took a 
unfortunately, you know, he wasn't around for the bar mitzvah or, or to meet the other two grandchildren or. But they had they had that kind of pride at the bar mitzvah. Unbelievable. I'll never forget this Tante Zelda, who survived with my mother. They came down. My mother and father gave up their bed and moved into my room. I gave up my bed and moved in with my sister. So this Tante Zelda and the Voyasov could, could stay in the house. That is the, the uh, respect that they had for the Eldrin. Mm. Oh, so they wanted to have the family again. So, you know, the greener, the, the survivors became family for each other. Right, exactly. There's a picture that's floating around yeah. Facebook at my brother's bar mitzvah of all of us second generations. It's really yeah. bright. It, crazy to see all the, you know, we're now 67 yeah. years old. You know, it's interesting that, you know, in the beginning that my home, you know, mentioned that this is the generation, we have the generation that wasn't meant to be. We have the generation right. that wasn't meant to be. And I remember, I actually came to, you know, first time to Beth Jacob in 1974, when I met a young rabbi with a, you know, nice black beard, <laughs> and, you know, asking me what I'm doing here. Uh, this was uh, by Emmanuel Feldman, <laughs> speaking, speaking Yiddish, you know. <laughs> and um, um, so uh, he actually married uh, me and my wife. My wife is also second generation, okay? She can tell you more stories about it. And I remember his speech, you know, that he said, this is our triumph, this is a Jewish triumph. You have the second generation, Mark and Marsha getting married here. This is the generation that wasn't meant to be, okay? And I remember this speech very vividly, because you usually don't remember the speeches from your own wedding, okay? From your own wedding, it's just that. But I remember this speech, you know, very vividly. My, you know, my wife's parents were also survivors, but they were survivors in the woods. They were in partisans. They were partisans of, you know, the Belsky's Brigade. And, you know, Belsky just, you know, died. Uh, he passed away a few years ago in New York. So she had the stories. And uh, Marcia's mom used to come to, to every Shabbos. She used to come to our house. and. I remember just, you know, putting her feet on the other, you know, sitting on one chair, putting the feet on the other chair, and telling the stories. They didn't, you know, my parents were always open. They always talked about, you know, Holocaust. I, I, I developed interest in it. My, my wife calls it passion for it. You know, I'm very interested, you know, about, you know, anytime I hear, the story, you know, can pick up something and read, I do. And uh, her parents didn't talk much until I came, because I was the boy from the Alta Medina that could understand them, okay? And that's what they start opening up, okay? So I actually knew more about her parents than she did until her mother came and actually Russia taped, you know, her, we had tapes and tapes, you know, like six hours of her or something, you know. So this was another, my parents were, were talking about it. And me, I have a different perspective on it because actually I grew up in Poland. You know, first 21 years I was in Poland. Um, and uh, I met with, you know, with the Polish people who were okay or who were anti-Semites. Um, my classmate, you know, I sat with him for five years together. I don't know why he didn't know I'm Jewish, but, uh, but he, you know, he used to come to our house. My father was reading Yiddish papers and there was Yiddish books, you know, on the table. But he didn't know it. At the end of our school, he said, I hate the Jews. And I said, what do you mean? So I would put them by the wall and shoot them all. And I said, why do why you hate the Jews? He said, I just hate them. I said, you don't hate them. Your parents taught you to hate them. I said, have you ever seen a Jew in your life? He says, no. 
I said, you're an idiot. You're looking at one for five years. Why would you put me at the wall and shoot me? Oh, Mark, I didn't know. I'm sorry. I said, forget it. I didn't, spoke with, you know, didn't speak with him since then. You know, he wanted to contact me. I don't know. But this is the kind of people have, you know, we have you know, in Poland. And, you know, during the communist era, the, the, the you know, government supposedly was not, you know, uh, uh, not uh, anti-Semitic, but it was. But the people were not supposed to be anti-Semitic. You did something, you know, sometimes you offended, they demanded that you write apology to a Jew or something like that. Well, the communists failed, it's just the opposite. There's so much neo-Nazis, so many neo-Nazis in Poland right now. And uh, the government is good with Israel, okay? They want our money. American dollars too, okay. So it's 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 a totally different thing. Yeah. And the thing is that you know Poles like to 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 emphasize how many Jews they saved. There were a bunch of Jews saved by the righteous among the nations there, but majority of them were pro-Nazis. Even though Nazi prosecuted them, they were so anti-Semitic. I mean, if you if you think of it, where were the majority of the camps? Okay, there were hundreds or, or thousands of, of camps, okay? But there were six camps, specific six camps that were death camps. There were Belgians, Helmdel, Auschwitz, Sobibor, Treblinka, and Majdanek. Where are they? Poland. Poland. Why? There was a good cooperation by the Polish population. They were, you know, they were, you know, hunting the Jews and, you know, for a liter of vodka. Because the reward would be a one, you know, liter of vodka and they would, they would pull the Jew. And, uh, my mother, you know, lived in town before the war. She lived in town. There were some Volksdeutsch, like you said, of German descent. And they used to go to school together or play together. I don't remember this. He used to sometimes come and eat matzah in, in, in my parents, you know, in my, my mother's house. When they were being deported in the cattle ca in our cars, my mother saw him through the little window, you know, through the little window. She was very thirsty. So she asked him, said, beg him, said, give me some water, give me some water. And he picked up, you know, the, uh, a piece of uh, barbed wire, and he smacked her in, in, in the head, just through this window. It's like, you, you know, just just a few weeks ago, you were in the house, you were eating with them, you were drinking, you know, their food, you know. It's like unpredictable, you know. And you know, my my father unfortunately passed, you know, young, and my mother came with me. Uh, fortunately, she, my mother couldn't, you know, couldn't, couldn't speak with, about my father for six years without crying. She mourned him for six years. It was a great love. Unfortunately, she was a match with somebody, and she married another survivor from, from Poland who, uh, say, you know, who, say, you know, who survived the war in Siberia. And uh, you know, it was, they, they lived for 28 years together. It was uh, like amazing, amazing you know, match. You know, he, understood, he understood her. I can tell everybody else one thing. I know I happen to know both these uh, individuals and the way they took care of their mothers, respectively, till the dying day. Amazing, amazing devotion. Um, I always felt like they had suffered so much. You could, yeah, I did you not do any of this. want to suffer for her for not for one second. And I, I, I think from the age of 12 or 13, I, that just was a part of me mm. that I, I just was not gonna allow her to suffer in any kind of way. I think one of the happiest days of my life was when my mother moved in. She sat at my kitchen table and cried as my sister and brother and I were moving her furniture in. It, she never wanted to be a burden. Mm -hmm. And we kept telling her, are you kidding me? This is fantastic, this is wonderful. 
And it, it was fabulous having her every Friday night, every Shabbos, every Yanta. It, it was just fabulous. It was just, just you know. My, my parents were get, becoming elderly in Florida, and they used to call me all the time. Every time they went to visit the doctor, they called me Samar. You know, your doctor. This doctor said this, what do you think? And I said, Mom, I cannot be a doctor. You want me to be a doctor, you move to Atlanta. It was going for, for, for a few years. Eventually, they needed to move to Atlanta, so they moved with us. And my mother wanted to go to the apartment. And I said, no. I said, because every day you're going to call me with something. I, on, from, on the way from work, I always have to be stopping by your place. I said, you want to come? You come with us. And my, and my stepfather, my, you know, I said, he said, if I'm going to Atlanta, he says, in Yiddish, he always said, only with Mendel, because my, my Yiddish name, Mendel, is only with Mendel. So finally, my mom relented and moved in. Unfortunately, he was very sick, and he died soon after they moved in. And my mother lived with us for 14 years. Sometimes she drove me crazy. But I never considered putting her in a nursing home, because she did so much for me. And I didn't do as much for her. I just took, you know, medically speaking and so forth and so holding her hand. But the person who took care of my mother for 14 years is sitting right there. So you can't do that without your wife. I mean, she, she was a, the caregiver, you know. Uh, people give me credit. I would say I'll take 5% of credit. She gets 95. Amen. She was cooking special food for her. You know, whatever mama liked. And mama said, you know, mama was losing it towards the end. And she said, Mama, what do you want to eat? And she had said something. She went to cook for her. She brought it back and said, I don't want it. What do you want? Something else? I'll cook again. You know, she, 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 she has so much patience. I don't. I don't. <laughs> it's like, you know, you know, but for my mother, I have to and so forth. You know, but my mother was losing you know, towards the end. And, uh, uh, and you know, for those of you who still have parents and your parents are losing it, you know, and they're getting confused, don't try to straighten her up, live in their, in, in their dreams, live in their environment. Because my mother complained about different things, you know. Yeshiva boys are standing outside and singing, and she cannot go to sleep. I opened the window. I said, boys, go home, because mama wants to go to sleep. Close the window. Now mama can go to sleep. Why should I convince her that there's nobody there? You know, she doesn't. It's her, you know, hallucination, I guess, whatever. You live in her reality. That's what you have to do. So we're running, not running late. This is really splendid. I would love to go another couple of hours. We can go another year. Yeah, another year or two, another lifetime, really, another generation. But um, let me let me put you on the spot, both of you. Um, if your parents could say something now to the sixty people on Zoom and the twenty-five people over here, uh, what do you think they would say? I'm putting you on the spot. One of you is going to have more time to think about it than the other. What would they want anybody to know? I don't know, Matt. For my mother, family was everything. Mm. Family was everything. She survived with nothing but her family. So for her, family. So whatever broikas you have, let it go. It's family. Mm. Just do family thing. Um, Those are good words for sort of the famous also. Mm -hmm. Mark, anything? Oh, when, my, when my father was close to, to, to pass away, you know, I mentioned before, you know, he was religious before the war. During the war, he lost it. He was not religious after the war. He taught me a little bit and so forth. But before he passed away, he did the vidui. He said he needed to make peace with Hashem. Mm -hmm. So I was very happy with, about it. Um, but before he died, um, he didn't want Mama to stay in Poland. She said, I don't want her to come to the cemetery and cry every day. He said, take, he said, take Mama and go to America 
you know, I have already brothers, sisters in here, so go to America, take mama, take care of her, take care of the family. Make sure that your brother gets married, never was still single and so forth. He, he put a lot of, you know, responsibility of it, and I did. Um, I think I, I didn't disappoint him. Raising uh, a family and, and generations. Yeah. That's what it's all about. I think it's very appropriate to end on that note. Thank you both for sharing your guts with us. Thank you very much. Jewish history, you know, Crusades, Spanish Inquisition, everything, it's all like that. You lose everything, but as long as you got your family, and those who didn't survive with a family, made a family. How could somebody who went through everything that they went through get married and bring children into this world, and then revel in bar and bas mitzvahs, and float down to the chuppah taking their children to get married, and then being at the bris or naming of their grandchildren. Oh my gosh. That, that's an amazing story. That's amazing. That's, a, that's amazing. Things like this. And without help from any therapist, there was nothing no called PTSD. No, yeah. They just This was a greater generation. This was a greater generation. It's amazing. You know, they never asked for help. They were self-sufficient. Right. They were tough. You know, and you know, one thing what my father always, you know, said is like when the survivors, you know, pass, they're going straight to Olam Haba. He said, you know, you go to Gehenna once and we'll have to be there. And they supported each other also. Yeah. Oh yeah, we were all family. Well, we you know, I, I can't say that too much, you know, I was in Poland so I didn't have that. <laughs> no, but Marsha's parents and yeah. my parents and there was a third family that belonged to share this with the Eislers. They Eislers. were the three. Yeah. Um, and they did everything together. Everything. But all the Greener, all the survivors were family to each other. They co-signed for each other to buy houses, to buy businesses. They helped each other with everything. They were family for each other. Let's, let's call the end of the program and then uh, the program is over. Everybody who needs to leave. Yes, please, doctor. I wasn't going to ask this question until you brought it up about yes. this friend who was, uh, I'll line them up and shoot them. Jews were in Poland, my family, I don't know how far back, but Jews were in Poland for five, six hundred years. Yeah. Yes. We were part of the fabric of the place. And what puzzles me is, what did we leave there that is part of Polish culture still? 
I've asked this question once before from a woman who's probably now she's about 45, who's, who left Poland only 10 years ago. I'm curious, because you were 21, what is still in Poland, even without Jews there, what's still in Poland of a Jewish influence or of? Not much. Uh, not much, I, I, I imagine. I, I haven't been in Poland. Uh, I left Poland in 72, 73. I uh, went to Poland one time in 1995 for two weeks. After four days, I had enough. I came back. I uh, haven't gone back again. I mean, probably one day I'll go over there with my wife just to show her where I lived and just go to visit my father to say something to him at the Matsaima. But I'm not interested in Poland. Uh, I've seen the concentration camps. I've, I live there. Um, What's left there? Uh, the industry, the buildings, you know, the apartments that the Jews left and was taken by the Goyim. Um, as a matter of fact, recently, uh, I was looking at, uh, at some of the maps and some, you know, view of my hometown, and I was showing my wife, you know, different buildings and so forth, and I was just saying, this used to be Jewish, this used to be Jewish, this the nicest buildings, the biggest, you know, the biggest, uh, you know, apartment buildings and so forth, they were owned by Jews. Mm -hmm. There were no money, you know, taken back. The industry, 70% of the industry in my hometown was Jewish before the war, okay? So uh, it was only 17,000 17, Jews or so. There were 40 different publications, imagine this, you know? 40 different publications, you know, Jewish publications, in Hebrew, in Yiddish, and you know, it's like, we're talking about from, from the Gera all the way down to the communists, everything, you know, you have the whole spectrum. It's amazing. There were two beautiful synagogues. One synagogue was, was built, um, I think, in the 17th century by some Italian designer. I don't remember the name. Uh, it was burned. And of course, you know, this was another um, uh, perversion of the Nazis. They took the barrels, the big barrels filled with, uh, with tar and made the Jews to take it to the synagogue and set it on fire. And the synagogue was burned. And uh, after the burning of the synagogue, they accused Jews of burning, burning the synagogue and you know, neighboring buildings, and the Jews had to pay reparations. You know, this was there, you know, just remember, you know, when you said that. But um, it was an amazing synagogue. I have some pictures of this synagogue. Right now, it's an apartment building. You know, they, they never rebuilt it. Mm -hmm. There was another synagogue. You know, my, my father was a gabbai in the synagogue. So, uh, you know, I, I remember what he was telling me. You know, beautiful. And there was another one, they just built the schools. Some of the, the buildings, you know, the, most of it, it was, you know, it was taken by the going. When my mother came back, you know, and she went to the place that she lived, she could see the parents' furniture, everything was, the furniture was there, the, the, the china was there, everything was there. And so the guy said, no, no, it's not yours. And there were two candlesticks there, you know, Shabbos candlesticks. How could they say it's theirs? So, oh yeah, yeah, these are the candlesticks. That's your, you know, that must be yours. So my mother got two candlesticks, which uh, now is residing in my in my daughter's you know place. Okay. So what is the what did you mean by your question though? Do you mean what did the Jewish what did Jews contribute to the country? How did Jews question? change the culture of Poland? In a, there basically there are no Jews had the that. culture Poland. In, right. right. The I Jews have the culture. The Poland didn't, and they still, still don't. We were like ten percent of the country, right? But ten percent of the country, but but some of the some of the some of the places where you know to, you know have you know have, have of the population were Jewish, yes. you know, villages and, and so forth. 
you know. We, we, it's as if we, we didn't change anything in the way they think or see the world or culture. There must be, you know. I, I, there must I, be something, I, I don't know. Uh, in the Warsaw Cemetery, uh, which I visited in order to find my ancestors. So the first several acres are populated with Jewish monuments only in Polish. Right? No Hebrew in it. Right? These were assimilated Jews. You know, so yes. uh, I've met, I've met there, were, children and there were hundreds and thousands of Jews who, in Poland who were part of Polish society, more than part of Jewish society. Yeah. So you've got to be right. I don't know what the contribution was. But they definitely, but they didn't need the Jews for that. They had they had their own lousy Polish culture without the Jews. Right. You know? yeah, it, it's amazing to me that. Yeah. Did you find Yeah, I found my uh, I found my great grandmother, which is a miracle. That, that cemetery is. It's famous. huge. It's a city. It's a city. You know, a few, like few a years back, I, when I was in Poland, I didn't know that. But a few years back, I found <clears throat> through the internet and so forth, found that. You know the gravesite of my mother's aunt, my father's aunt in Lodge, That's and my my brother was going to Poland. I said, Joe, you have to go to Lodge. He said, It's not my plan. Yeah. He was going to Helmno and so forth. And I said, He's in Israel, so he's going. It's not your plan. I said, You have to change the plan. And I told him why. And he actually went over there, took the picture, and sure enough, that's my, that's my great aunt or something. You know, they discovered after, this is off the topic, but they discovered fairly recently, I believe within the last 10 years, that um, the Jews lived under the Warsaw Cemetery for years during World War II. They literally uh, dug under the graves and lived under the graves in like tunnels under the cemetery because nobody would expect anybody to be living under dead bodies. Unbelievable. There were many cases where the Jews were saved, you know, by themselves or, you know, in a, you know by, by the Poles, but the minority. I mean, if 1% of the Polish population was was good, you're going to have a few hundred Hasidic, you're going to have people who sacrifice. If 99% kill Jews and 1% save Jews, you're going to have a good number of uh, heroes. But you have to remember that in a lot of countries that Jews lived and I'm not sure Poland was like this or not, because Poland was actually very welcoming to the Jews for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that's why there were so many there, and that's why there were so many yeshivas there, because they encouraged Jews to come. But um, in most countries in the world, Jews were not allowed to have many professions. There were very limited professions. So their ability to contribute to the societies was very limited There were a lot of professors, you know, Jewish, you know, Jewish professors in universities, to which Jewish students were not allowed to go. Right. Right. Thank you. 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 Thank you.